0: Good morning, Trinity Church. How you doing? Good. You guys sound alive, and I know the band and the choir sure helped. I'm going to tell you right after, could we thank them? Let's do that. Did a great job. I wouldn't want you to think that's the only time you're gonna to get to hear the choir, because when I'm done, this might be the day, more than ever, you're like, Todd, hurry up, because these guys are gonna come back out and they are gonna rock your world. They have, we have a great service today, and they're just gonna bring the right kind of an appropriate enthusiasm and joy, because that's what we're here to do today. We are here to celebrate that death no longer has a hold on me, a hold on you, and that's what we are excited to get to share with you. My name's Todd Arnett, and the lead pastor here at Trinity Church, absolute privilege of mine to get to be here with you today, especially when I welcome you if you're a guest with us. Thank you for making this a part of your Easter celebration. We're so glad that you're here. Well, a couple of things. I want you to get your mind thinking a little bit this morning. Think about what comes to mind when you hear the word Easter, Just think about that. When you hear the word Easter, what are the things that maybe the first things that pop in your mind? Maybe for some of us who might be a little younger or we think back to when, it might have been an Easter basket, right? And full of candy and looking forward to that in a big way. Some of you are having to wait until even after this today to get yours and you're like, really like, Todd, hurry it up. Others of us have already had some hints, the enthusiastic nature that you have right now uh, because of the sugar rush that you're still on from those uh, chocolate bunnies. But either way, uh, that might be, maybe for others it's the idea of in your family it's always been a thing to color Easter eggs and you put all the cool colors on them. I've got my polka dot shirt. I was thinking about that today when I, when I got dressed. Of the way that just sometimes it's such a big deal and fun to hide them all around the yard and, and the house. For others of us, you think of Aunt Margaret. For some reason, it's because for the last 25 years, you keep going to Aunt Margaret's house every Easter uh, afternoon, and you're gonna do it again today. As soon as we're done, that's where you're packing off to, and that's a great thing. And for others of us, when you think of Easter, if you're a foodie, kind of like me, you just think about food. Like way too much all the time, but especially the foods that are associated with Easter and you kind of get excited. And then you're also saying, Todd, hurry up, because we're excited to go get uh, Easter lunch today. Well, today, this is what I want to do. I want to I push on you, if I could, to think about one word in particular. During our time together this morning, I'd ask you to think about one word in particular about Easter, associated with Easter, and it's the word life. Life. Life is the word. And in case you missed that, when you drove in today, we had big letters out on the lawn so you wouldn't forget. But that's the word that I want to have kind of at the front of your mind today. And I want you to think of it this way. I want you to think of it in terms of Jesus's resurrected life, back to life from the dead. I also want you to think it related to you and the hope of eternal life that you can have in Jesus. And finally, I want you to know this. I want you to think of it in terms of what you can become convinced of, even today, of what happens after this life. You'll note from the banners that are up on on the stage here that that's the beginning. This is a brand new series that we kick off today called After This Life. And what we're gonna be doing over the next few weeks is we're just gonna take a look at what the Word of God tells us. What does the Bible teach about heaven and hell? And we thought this would be the best way to kick it off on Resurrection Sunday, where heaven becomes an option, it becomes available to us because of what Jesus did at the cross and the empty tomb. So we're real excited that you're here to kick it off with us today. If you have a Trinity this week, you have some notes that look like these, if you want to get those out, have those ready to go, it'll just help you track with us a little bit as we walk through the message. And also, if you have a Bible today, if you could open it to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15. If you don't have a Bible, no problem. We'll have the verses on the screen in a little bit. But if you have one, 1 Corinthians is the seventh book in the New Testament. Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians. And find your way to chapter 15, and um, that'll get us ready for today. So what we're doing today is we're, we're kicking off this series, and our goal is, is that I believe there's just a lot of misinformation and what I would even say a lot of misbelief related to what happens after this life, related to the topics of heaven and hell. And our goal is, is not just to produce orthodox belief, definitely to be more than interesting. The goal of the series is to motivate us that we would be motivated to live life now in light of the truth of what happens after this life about the realities of heaven and hell, that should motivate us to live out God's purposes in this life now. So that's, that's our goal and that's where we're going and we start that way uh, kicking off today. Every week we have what I call a now what statement and it's the idea of what am I supposed to do this week from what the word of God says. So see it on the screen or see it in your notes. It says you can have the confidence of going to heaven because of what Jesus accomplished for you. You can have the confidence of going to heaven because of what Jesus accomplished for you. Let's dive in on your notes. Number one, the hope of heaven is based on Jesus' resurrection. The hope of heaven is fixed. It's firmly based on Jesus' resurrection. If your Bibles are open to 1 Corinthians 15, look at verse 1. It says, Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and then to all of the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. So here we are. This, this letter is written by a guy named Paul. Paul was actually someone who was super antagonistic to the way of Jesus and to Jesus' followers. He was actually one that, at the very first uh, follower of Jesus who was ever killed for his faith, we call that being a martyr, was a guy named Stephen. And Paul was not only there, he was actually holding the coats of the men who were murdering him. So that's how involved he was. He was actually on his way to go and harass more followers of Jesus when the risen Jesus showed up to him on the road to Damascus and said to him, why are you persecuting me? He falls off his horse and he realizes I have missed it and he becomes convinced of just the opposite of what he was against that this Jesus really is who others had told him he he was and who the Old Testament, the former covenant had been teaching him to look for. So Paul has this total turnaround and he becomes convinced that Jesus really is the Messiah. Now he's writing in this letter to a group of new Jesus followers who live in a city called Corinth, hence the name Corinthians. If you look on a map, Corinth was about 65 miles west of Athens, and I'll show you in a minute why that's significant. It was over a land bridge, and Corinth, you could still see it today. Corinth actually has a really cool canal that kind of goes through that region, almost like our Panama Canal, but it runs north and south instead of east and west. So within that, this is the city, this is our present day, but this was the city back then in the first century called Corinth. In Corinth, or in the first century, Athens was the epicenter of philosophy and thought. What the world, what influenced literally the known world, came out of Athens only 65 miles due east of them. And Athens had really put together this idea, the prevailing thought, from the likes of Plato and Homer, where of this idea that the whole goal of life was to escape the material world and go to a spiritual world. That's what everything was aiming toward and the goal of what everyone's life was about. That's where real bliss was to be found. So this problem, though, of a physical resurrection, of, being, of coming back to life in a physical body, that was not desirable. So understandably, what the Corinthians had heard, Paul said, was the foundation of their faith. Now they're confused because they thought, well, that's not a good thing to actually be resurrected. So this proves so confusing to them. So therefore, Paul writes this letter. And in this particular chapter, chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, his goal is to help clear up their confusion. And great news, his goal is to help clear up our confusion. Because we're equally confused about what happens after this life. So see how the chapter begins. Jesus was crucified on a Roman cross, his body placed in a tomb, and on the third day, he was brought back to life. He was raised from the dead. And look at that phrase we read, we read twice, try to say that 10 times, um, is the phrase, according to the scriptures. So here's what we're saying is we're saying that in the, the former covenant in the Old Testament, God had forecasted or prophesied that his one-of-a-kind son, the Messiah, would actually be killed and would raise again on the third day. These were not necessarily new ideas, though for the people who were present at Jesus' crucifixion and even present at the empty tomb, they were completely blown away, completely confused about what was happening. So Paul goes on then to list some of the people that personally interacted with the resurrected Jesus, some of whom were still living, and and Paul obviously for for himself as well. So Peter, one of the 12, is actually, he was named as Cephas in the passage we just read. Listen to what he said in one of his first sermons in Acts chapter 2, verse 32. He says, God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. So we're talking about people who had first-person knowledge and information. So let's see this. Let's understand clearly what Paul is saying at the beginning of this chapter in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, it's a fact that Jesus the Messiah was killed, was buried, and then was raised back to life. He was seen by multiple people and especially hundreds of them at one instance who are still, many of them, alive today that you could go and ask them, who did you see, what was that like? Paul writes that these things aren't things I just made up or things that I bought into some big myth, but these are eyewitness accounts that you can put your confidence in that they in fact really happened. Now, that's really great for people who lived in the first century who could have even maybe navigated their way back to Jerusalem and talked to eyewitnesses, but we don't have that luxury. We can't talk to Paul and ask him what he knew and what it was like. We have the scriptures, we have the Bible, and that's what we have to go from. So let me just say this, if you're here today, and you would say this idea of believing that a person really died and really was brought back to life, and not just back to life and then died again, but has not died since, is at the hand of, of God Almighty, you would just say, Todd, that's a hard pill to swallow. Like that just doesn't happen. Nobody does that. And, and if that's your, your take today, I understand I understand that would be really hard to believe and go, man, I don't know what to think about that. I've never heard of that happening before. And science doesn't really prove that things like that happen. This is a hard thing for me to believe. And I would tell you it was hard for the Corinthians to get their heads around as well. But I want you to hear this today. Rather than it being a myth that just blew up, rather than it being some sort of thing that maybe Jesus never really died and they just put him in a tomb and he kind of came out on his own, Maybe the idea that the Bible's full of a lot of things that are hard to believe, and this is just another one of them. Maybe rather than any of those, what I would want to encourage you is this. I for sure wouldn't want you to miss a key piece to this whole idea of the resurrection. When we say that Easter changed everything, we mean it, because this is what we believe. Look in your notes. As hard as it may be to accept Jesus' resurrection happened 2,000 years ago, it's the basis of everything that Jesus' followers believe and live according to. I would not want you to miss that it's the bedrock, it's the foundation upon everything else that Jesus' followers believe and live according to you. Let me tell you why I say that. Look at the very next words in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 12. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection from the dead? That was what was going on in Corinth. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. Look at this last verse. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. Wow. That is a lot that Paul's talking about. And what he's saying is, if Jesus didn't really die and wasn't raised again on the third day, then everything we have been telling you is a bunch of bunk. It's lies, it's nothing that you can put your confidence in, nothing you can have faith in, nothing that you can believe that others who passed on already in death have any hope for as well. The whole thing falls apart. So just realize the value and the worth when we talk about Jesus' resurrection, it's not an addendum to faith. It's not something that lingers over here that's kind of optional. Well, I don't really, it is the bedrock. It is absolutely core to everything else that follows after it. Look at that bold phrase. If this is true, if these are all lies, we are of all people most to be pitied. You, you are more confused than anyone on the planet if Jesus didn't really raise from the dead and yet you're following him. The resurrection, for sure, of Jesus is the foundation of all these things. And without that reality, none of them are worth believing in or following. Think of it like this. Think about you, your family. Maybe you've been saving up for a vacation. And think about the week before your vacation, your boss comes to one of, one of you and says, you know what, that vacation you'd planned, I need you to work every single one of those days. That's not gonna work. Oh, and, and by the way, and you've been doing your finances, all the funds that you had been saving all this year for to be able to go on vacation, went to switching out the transmission in the minivan. So no, no, no days off, no money, but then someone tells you, but go ahead and plan the vacation anyway. You're like, there is no point in that. We are not going and it's done. That would be the same attitude if we would say, hey, don't worry about the resurrection, it's not a big deal, but go ahead and keep being religious. And we would say, no, there's no point in that. But it's the resurrection that matters so very, very much. That's how big of a deal Jesus' resurrection is, not just to Easter, but to everything that a follower of Jesus puts their hope in, especially that of heaven. Let's just start with that first. Number two in your notes, Jesus' resurrection was the prototype of what awaits his people. Jesus' resurrection was the prototype of what awaits his people. Here's what we mean. The very next words, 1 Corinthians 15, 20. But Christ has indeed been risen from the dead. Paul wants to say, let's not follow that line of logic anymore. It really happened. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive, but each in turn, Christ the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. It is an amazing thing to consider that Jesus beat death. I didn't say Jesus cheated death. That means you get right to the edge and somehow, with against all odds, still don't die. No, Jesus died and rose again. The only other thing you can think of of someone beating death are those half of the Avengers that dissolved in the last movie and you know they're gonna bring them back, right? I mean, come on. You're gonna watch the end game just like I am and you're gonna see how they're all gonna come back to life and it was just, it was just, it was just a bad, uh, I'm sorry if I'm spoiling it, by the way. My bad. But, but, here, but here's my point. One of these things we would say historically happened, and the other is a lot of fun to watch on a screen. One changes everything. And this idea of Jesus defeating death truly is the the foundation of everything we're talking about moving forward. So here's the question. Once someone beats death, once someone beats death, what can you do to him? What kind of thing would there ever be to be afraid of? Because that's what we know. The Bible even says it. The, the fear of death is all of our greatest fears. We don't know. We have a, a con- confusion and concerns. What happens after this life? Yet we know 10 out of 10 of us are going to face that reality. So that's what's so great about what Jesus did at the cross in the empty tomb. In defeating death, we're going to see today, he didn't just do that for himself. But praise God, he did it for you. So what can you do this is what Paul says later in the same chapter we're in 1 Corinthians 15:55 where o death is your victory where o death is your sting I think about it this way, like a lot of us have good reason to be concerned when a bee or a wasp kind of enters into your territory. Think of like the last picnic you were at, and these things are starting to hover around, and you're dodging them, you're doing this. Some of you throw up stuff and run as fast as you can the other way. You want nothing to do. Some of you have an allergic reaction, so that's a really big deal. But the reality is, is no one's just kind of acting as though life is normal when one of these insects are around you because they've got a stinger that you're concerned about and for good reason. But think about this. Think if there was a de-stingered bee or a wasp. I know I just made up a word. But if there was a de-stingered bee or a wasp, then how would you react? You'd treat it just like a common fly. Just shoo it away. I don't want you on my food. Don't get near me. But you definitely wouldn't have a sense of paralyzing fear. That's what this verse is saying. Death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? You've been de-stingered. Because of what Jesus did, and not just for himself, but the great news is, is what he did for you. His defeat of death carries value and power for his followers as well. His resurrection in this passage we read is called the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Here's what the concept. We don't use that word every day, right? Let's go talk about the first fruits. That's kind of a weird word to us. This let me explain what it means. Look at the quote up on the screen. It says, Under the law of the Old Testament, the first sheaf of the crop of wheat was to be brought to God as a guarantee that the rest of the harvest was coming. So this first fruits was actually a festival, a feast that uh, the Jewish people would celebrate, and they would bring this first sheaf of barley or grain, and it would represent the whole crop, the whole harvest that is yet to come. So it is in God's redemption harvest, first Christ, the first fruits, has triumphed in his resurrection, then the rest of his crop, as it were, the redeemed, will be raised triumphantly at his second coming. So watch this. So while we marvel at Jesus' conquering of death, and rightly so, we are blown away that Jesus' death guarantees something for us. That's powerful. Look in your notes. What Jesus did by going first through death, he did to show us what the outcome would be by being raised again to life. What Jesus did by going first showed us what the ultimate outcome could, would be and that we could have confidence that because he's conquered death, he's made a way for us to as well. Author and pastor Max Lucado tells a story of a missionary in the um, Brazilian rainforest. And, and the story goes this way, that this missionary had heard about a group of native peoples who were having a real problem. There was a disease that was plaguing their village, and it was killing people literally by the day. And he had a burden to go see how he could help. And so he gets in his boat, comes across the river over to them. And when he greeted them, what he knew of them would be born to be true. And that is that these people were literally, the hospital wasn't far away. And the hospital had a cure for what they faced. But they were not willing to go across the river. They were deathly afraid that the river was full of evil spirits. And if they were to cross the river, they would die in the process. So he said to them, well, let me show you, that's not true. I came over on a boat already over the river and I'm fine. They were not impressed. So he said, well, come with me. And he brought them to the edge of the bank of the river and he put his hands down in the water and came up and showed them. And they still said, no way. So then he thought, okay. So he wades out into the river about waist deep, takes a a pool of of water in his hands and splashes his face and demonstrates, look, I'm fine. And still they said, nope. Evil spirits are about to get you. Until so finally he did this. He took one big breath of air, dove underneath the water, stayed under for a moment, and when he popped back out, he raised a victorious fist, and the people went ecstatic. They went nuts, and they believed finally that you could go under the water and actually live to tell about it on the other side. When you think about it, isn't that what happened in Jesus' going first through death and resurrection? He went under death, as it were, and came up the other side, demonstrating to us that the thing that we feared the most is something he has conquered. And he's done it not just for himself, but the great news is he's done it for you. This last part to me is so powerful when you think of this line Jesus isn't just a hero who beat death and is now invincible, Jesus is a savior. A Savior who invites you to follow him to everlasting life based on him going first. Finally today, number three in your notes. Heaven isn't based on wishful thinking or being good, but by relying on Jesus. Heaven isn't based on wishful thinking or being good, but by relying on Jesus. John chapter 11, verse 25, one of the Gospels, it says, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. The context of this is these are words are spoken by Jesus to a woman whose brother has just died. And she's grieving this loss. And here's what I want you to hear today. When eternal destiny was the topic, we're talking, they're talking it like a funeral. So this is not some sort of a a theoretical, let's just have a chat. They're talking at a funeral about eternal things. Jesus didn't encourage this woman to just have wishful, happy thoughts and hope that her brother's in a better place. He never told her that. When everlasting life was on the table, Jesus didn't instruct this woman to be more religious or to try to be more moral. Those were never things he said to her. When Jesus was talking about life and death and one's eternal destination, he simply said, rely on me. Rely on me. Rely on me because I am the resurrection and the life. Rely on me because by believing in what I've done rather than in something you can do. Rely on me who is able to take away your sin and raise you from the dead because of what I've accomplished at the cross and the empty tomb. Rely on me. You see, we kick off this new teaching series today on Resurrection Sunday It will provide clarity over the next few weeks of what happens after this life. And I want you to see from the very beginning, it's not about what you can do to merit or deserve something from God. It's never been based on that. But it's about what His Son, Jesus Christ, has already accomplished for you. It's counter to every religious paradigm This is why we get so excited about today and about celebrating the resurrection is because every other religious leader has a grave. And there's somebody there. But Jesus, Jesus is unlike any other because we believe that the Bible is true and it says he did die, he was put in a grave, but he came out victorious and he's never died again. Every religious paradigm, when you break it down, when you get down to the nuts and bolts, at some degree, it's how you can do something to be worthy of that deity. What rules you have to keep, what kinds of sacrifices you have to make. At the end of the day, how can I be counted as worthy, as deserving before this deity? What is so fascinating is that biblical Christianity, though, is the only one who says, it's not about anything you can do, but what this God has already done for you. That's what this invitation is. That's this, why we call it the good news because that's great news to know. What's required is not being good enough but being humble enough to receive what's been done on your behalf. Look in your notes. That's where life is found in surrender, not sacrifice. True life in this life and for eternity is found not in sacrifice but in surrender, in surrendering to what God freely has offered to you. I want to close with this as we finish out this morning. And, and simply say this, for some of us, you would say, you know, Todd, that is really great for everyone else sitting in this room. <laughs> I still don't buy it, and I'm not interested. And one of the biggest reasons why I'm not interested is when I think about heaven and for eternity, and I think about white flowing robes and little harps and puffy clouds, that sounds a lot more like hell. <laughs> and I totally tell you, I agree. I agree. That is not what I'm hoping anything about eternity is about. And that's the great news about this series that we're just starting. We're going to unpack week over week. This is what the Bible teaches about the realities of heaven and hell. And so you'll get to hear it firsthand. But if that was your view of heaven, I could understand absolutely why that is very demotivating, not interested. I was thinking about it this way, I went with my daughters uh, at the beginning of January when my eldest one was home from school, we went to the Los Angeles County Museum of Art, LACMA, and we went down for a day, I have a couple pictures, and as we went we had a great time and there's so many just great things to look at and see, but for some reason we just ended up in the modern art building, it's the tallest building there, floor upon floor of things that I just don't understand, just be real honest. So we're in this modern art uh, building and as we're looking at these things and I'm still scratching my head, it'd be like if someone walked up to me and said, Todd, I have great news. You could spend eternity in here with a lot of modern art. And I would just go, the alternative must not be that bad then. But can I tell you this? The Bible says that related to the reality of heaven and hell, the alternative is really bad and nowhere that you would want to be. And that's why this series is so important to us, because we want to tell you the truth. How I want you to know that Jesus isn't anything like a modern art museum. And by the way, if you love modern art, I apologize. (laughs) But I'd want you to know this, and this is what I've been praying about in preparation all week long, is that you would have ears to hear this. I would want you to know that Jesus is who you've been looking for all your life. He's who's been behind what you've been after. He's what you've given yourself to in the pursuit of something that would finally satisfy and finally fulfill. He was there. He's the love that you've chased in so many faces. His is the love you've been after. He's the purpose that you've been trying to find in all of your quests. They're all bound up in Him. His name is Jesus and He invites you today to simply respond You see, it's not about what you can do, what you can give. It's simply a response to this invitation of coming into his family, of receiving his love, of receiving his forgiveness, and being one of his own. I want to tell you today, here's the response to that kind of good news. It begins by A, admitting. Admitting that you're a sinner who needs a savior. And by the way, when you admit that, you're just admitting what everyone that you do life with already knows. You're also admitting what every single person in this room has have to come to the same conclusion that the Bible says for none none live up to the glory of God all have fallen short. So I begin by saying God I recognize that I need you. Secondly it's believing. Believing in what Jesus did. This Jesus we've talked about who lived a sinless life. As much as anything else we've talked about today that's miraculous. He was the one who didn't deserve any type of punishment, but in living a sinless life, gave himself sacrificially to die on the cross in your place and supernaturally was raised on the third day. Jesus is the only savior available. Finally, it's to choose. To choose to say, as you look at that fork in the road, to choose to say, Jesus, I'm gonna put my trust, I'm gonna put my confidence in what only you could do for me. And I choose to follow you with my life. That's the appropriate response. And the great news is you can do that today before you even leave this place. There's no class to attend. There's no hoops to jump through. It begins, and the Bible makes it clear, today is the day of salvation. The alternative to life forever with Jesus, I just want you to know, is an existence forever apart from him. An important thought to consider is that God doesn't send anyone to hell But people, by not choosing him and heaven in this life, evidence that they don't want to be with him in the next. Listen to the way that C.S. Lewis said it in the book, The Great Divorce. He said, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. Without that self-choice, there could be no hell. No soul that seriously and constantly desires joy will ever miss it. Those who seek find, to those who knock, it's opened. My prayer today on this Resurrection Sunday is that you would be someone who would seek because I know you're going to find. Is that you would be someone who would knock because I know the door is going to be opened. And that you would say, today is the day it changes for me because of what Jesus did. Our now what statement, you can have the confidence of going to heaven because of what Jesus accomplished for you. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you today as a people who are rightfully so rejoicing, celebrating what you have done, what you alone could do. And not only taking our sin at the cross, but raising from the dead triumphantly giving us the hope, the true confidence of eternal life. And we say thank you for that. You may be here today and you may have heard this good news, this story of Jesus and what he's done for you. You may have heard that story many, many times, but you would realize you've actually never made a response. You've never responded to the invitation. It's like someone extending a gift and you not receiving it. And I have good news for you today. If this is your day, if you're ready, you can actually reach your hands out and grab hold and say, today's the day. I want to put my faith and trust in what Jesus has done for me. Others of you, this might have been one of the first times you've ever heard this story, and you're like, really? There's a God who did that, a God who loved me like that, and you likewise are ready to say, Jesus, I'm ready to put my faith and my trust in what you alone did for me. If you're here today and you want to respond to God through the lens of those ABCs, I'm going to ask you to do something a little bit uncomfortable, a little bold today. I'm just going to ask you to simply raise your hand where you are. And the reason I want you to raise your hand is I just simply want to take a minute to pray for you before we finish the service today by you saying, Jesus, yes, I'm ready to make that decision and follow you. Would you do that? Would you just raise your hand all around this room? And I'll just take a minute and pray for you before we finish today. That's great. Let me pray. Father God, I thank you for the hands that have been raised. I thank you for people who've come to a place of recognition. I need Jesus. I have no other hope, no other way to be right with God. And I pray today that there would be that just sense of joy, a sense of celebration. I think of the young man I got to pray with after second service who just had this sense of, I've never felt like this before. There's something new. And Jesus, that's what you came to do was to make all things new. I'm grateful that you did. Thank you for what you've done for us. We love you. We absolutely today celebrate what you've done in our place. And we pray in Jesus' great name, amen.